Hello and welcome to the Demystifying Media podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing science communication, fact-checking and the integration of climate change stories into reporting on a number of topics, ranging from health to real estate, as well as financial markets and social justice. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon, and my guest today is Rosalind Donald, a PhD candidate in communications at Columbia University. Roz is currently researching the community understanding of climate change in the city of Miami, and tomorrow she'll be talking about demystifying how climate change can be part of any beat. Ahead of that, we're fortunate to be joined in the studio by Roz, as well as my colleagues Holly Smith, Assistant Professor of Science and Environmental Communication at the University of Oregon's Media Centre for Science and Technology, and Destiny Alvarez, a graduate student at our School of Journalism and Communication. Thank you all for joining me. That's the point at which you say, oh, hello, it's great to be here. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Damien. It's great to be here. Uh, Roz, perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about the nature of your research. Um, It'd be great to hear about what you're learning and also how you're going about studying it. So I'm interested in uh, what happens when a city decides that it is vulnerable to climate change and um, the kinds of questions and and conversations that are going on around um, what it means to be a a city that's vulnerable. So what are people talking about? Are they talking about flooding, extreme heat? uh, Or what are they not talking about? You know, is our emissions part of the discussion? And uh, so the way that I'm studying that is uh, talking to people who are active in the space of climate change. So that might be uh, climate um, or social justice activists, um, officials at the city of Miami and uh, the county level. Um, I'm talking to um, people who are uh, making policy, deciding how um, how to respond to climate change. And then I'm also talking to um, engineers who are deal with things like flooding and, and um, what to do with uh, water in Miami. And... Um, I'm also talking to homeowners, uh, so people who are um, feeling the effects of climate change and um, are part of the discussions now about how Miami should respond. And so does the city recognise that it's vulnerable or do you see different answers depending on the constituents that you're talking to? So um, the kind of headline, you know, you know, Miami as a as a political entity, so the mayor of Miami, uh, the city of Miami, for example, and the mayor of Miami Beach um, have definitely um, put themselves at the forefront of um, cities talking about climate change. And so they see their role nationally and internationally as uh, kind of leaders in in talking about how to respond to climate change. But then on the ground, there are many different conversations happening. So people might... Um, acknowledge that they are vulnerable to sea level rise, for example. But um, thinking about how that's going to affect you day to day might be a little bit more difficult. Um, And people um, may or may not sort of accept the policy responses that are coming out of that. So on Miami Beach, for example, they're having to do um, a round of um, discussions about what kinds of... um, responses people would like to see and also how to balance uh, the risk of climate change with how much money they can spend on it so I mean in theory for example um, Miami Beach could um, raise its roads to deal with six foot of flooding but uh, in practice that's actually very 
difficult to do. Um, number one, it's difficult to get the buy-in um, locally because that's a very aggressive uh, response. Um, but also just in terms of the amount of money that they can spend. Um, and so I'm really interested in those kinds of calculations that people are having to make. So scientists are telling them what the... Um, potential outcomes could be but then um, policymakers are having to make a range of different decisions based on um, like local legitimacy you know what people are willing to accept um, the kinds of things that people are worried about you know are people worried about uh, affordable housing for example are they worried about um, congestion um, are they worried about the quality of the roads are they worried about um, drinking water um, and then also um, just how much it's going to cost to do this as well. What kind of role do you see science playing actually in the discussion? Is it a huge piece of the discussion or is it on balance with other issues? I mean, I think that it is a very big part of the discussion in that people are having to use the scientific data in order to make these decisions. But it's definitely like a piece of the puzzle too. I mean, the great thing in Miami is you have very engaged scientists who really want to help to make policy and be part of these kind of um, these scenarios that, that um, the area is kind of having to go through right now to imagine what the response could be. And you also have um, scientists kind of bringing in really um, cutting edge ideas, like thinking about how you can incorporate um, nature into the response uh, of climate change. So not just, say, like building a concrete seawall, but also thinking about how um, you could seed corals on top of a seawall um, that would keep pace with the level of sea rise, but also provide habitat, uh, clean the water um, and... Um, sort of provide like a whole different suite of benefits um and they're also talking about how um you know science policy could um address um some of the kind of social problems in Miami too because a really important thing to remember about climate change is that it makes the um problems in that that are occurring in society worse it like finds all the little weaknesses that exist and it kind of pulls on them it makes them um much more acute and and um potentially dangerous so like um air pollution for example um is getting worse as as heat gets worse uh and you know problems with asthma tend to be concentrated in areas um that have uh you know, more kind of black and brown populations, for example. And so you can't divorce these questions of social justice from um, science policy. And the great thing to see is that in, um, scientists and um, activists are coming to the table to talk about some of these issues. And what role does journalism play in this space in terms of communicating those complexities and also helping communities to make sense of the suite of options that are on the table and the implications of them? So journalism is playing, I see it playing several roles. Um, and it's really important to my study because I think that, you know, what I'm partly looking at is, you know, how does Miami see itself within this problem of, of climate change? And that has to do with, you know, the, the wider imagination of what Miami is. You know, what do people buy into when they move here, for example? And how do people see what, being a Miamian is. Uh, and journalism is part of that image. Um, on the national scale, for example, because 
you know, national reporters are coming to Miami all the time. And um, in part because, you know, the vision of Miami is so kind of seductive, you know, this, um, this beautiful place that's also full of problems, you know, and that has a part in um, this kind of self-image of Miami as being vulnerable. Um, and I think it's definitely played a part in spurring policy conversations. Like I've seen um, uh, policymakers and sort of people involved in, in different aspects of, of resilience planning in Miami bring up specific national um, features and um, and and wanting to talk about them and seeing, you know, what does it mean for people to read that about Miami? And then at the local level, I see a much more granular and sometimes um, I think more subtle conversation because people are having to make real decisions about how long they want to live in Miami, for example, or, um, you know, if they want to move off the coast and sort of further inland or... Um, what kinds of responses are going to be needed to deal with climate change? Um, and I think that's a, a conversation that's ongoing. It's, it's definitely incomplete. Um, but journalists are doing, a, I think, a really good job um, of connecting to the things that people care about and helping them to see themselves in some of the solutions to climate change. And I think that's been something that's been missing from the conversation about climate change you know, for a long time. Now, we, we've talked a lot about about Miami and the signs and effects of climate change being very prevalent there. How would a journalist go about covering climate change in an area where signs or effects of climate change aren't so obvious? Well, I think the thing to remember about Miami is that it's um, not all places that are as vulnerable are talking about climate change. So in the Carolinas, for example, there, there isn't the same level of discussion about um, climate change happening uh, or responding to climate change. And so I think that, you know, this is not necessarily um, a problem just for journalists who are dealing with maybe more subtle effects of climate change. But there are also many different ways to um, help people to connect um, the effects of climate change to the things that matter to them. Um, and if, if people are, say, in the Midwest where, um, or, or parts of the, the country that are a little bit, you know, they're going to see the effects a little bit later, then, you know, they might also be dealing with people from, um, coming in from other places that are more acutely vulnerable and being able to foster conversations about that that don't, um, become hostile, for example, and helping to think about how migration can be part of a response to climate change. You know, that's something that that be really important for journalists to talk about. And I also think there are so many subtle effects of climate change that don't necessarily have that kind of headline quality of, of sea level rise on somewhere glamorous like Miami Beach that um, really help people to connect to the things that they care about. So talking to gardeners, for example, about how they've seen the seasons change like in a kind of subtle way, but they, you know, they see their flowers coming out a little bit early or maybe there, there, are, uh, there are fruits that the, the harvest is not, not as good anymore or they're seeing more mosquitoes around or suddenly ticks are, uh, are visible in places where, you know, you didn't have ticks before um, 
which, you know, it's, it's nice not having ticks around <laughs> and suddenly having to pick them off your dog when you've been walking is, is, is not fun. So I think that there are all these kind of subtle ways that you can talk about climate change that really speak to people's daily lives. And in, even if climate change can seem far off, it's maybe one or two steps away from affecting you. I mean, one one thing that, um, yeah, because I'm British and, and we're going through Brexit right now, that, that, that could start to become a real problem for us is um, supply chains. You know, um, Brexit could potentially um, disrupt our supply chains um, in terms of the food that comes in because the, the UK imports a ton of food. Um, well, more, several tons, many tons of food. But also um, climate change will disrupt these uh, supply chains too. And we've um, got used to supply chains that um, operate on very short turnarounds. Um, you know, you d we don't stockpile um, goods in, in the same way. But what if... Um, you know, huge amounts of, of harvests have been disrupted. Um, you know, we're not going to see the same kind of food in the, in the supermarket or food could become more expensive. And there are also um, cultural foods that are really important to people um, and important to their identity, um, their way of life. And if those things are being disrupted, that, that affects much more than just, you know, what's on the table. It's also um, seeing how climate change is actually changing people's um, relationships to their environment um, and and also you know how they feel close to um, the, those parts of their environment. One of the barriers that we need to overcome as communicators to either be able to understand the potential of those stories I mean is that even on the radar of a lot of, of news are they thinking through those issues with that level of complexity or are they more looking at you said like the headline of uh uh, rising sea levels and uh, you know disappearing elements of nature and so forth like that tends to be the focus the kind of more sensationalist headline grabbing whereas the actual day-to-day -day practicalities of our lives changing is more subtle it's less glamorous it's less eye-catching but arguably it's just as momentous I think it has to do with um, changing attitudes towards the news too um, I think that news is going through a pretty tumultuous time right now. And so um, people are starting to revisit, you know, what does have news value? And the fact that this is actually a subjective choice. Um, so I think that, you know, part of it can be structural, like um, climate change reporting tends to be part of the science and environmental beat. Um, and I think that in part has to do with the attitudes of editors, that they don't see it as like as, as much of a, um, a pressing or, or serious issue as like politics or um, like foreign um, correspondence, for example. Um, and so it's a bit of a mind shift in some ways that requires it requires like revisiting um not just sort of how we see environmental news, but also maybe thinking about humans' relationship to nature kind of more fundamentally, uh, seeing ourselves as being part of an ecosystem rather than apart from it. Um, so there are kind of broader philosophical questions on a sort of very academic, uh, you know, I hate to kind of get too airy-fairy, but then um, I also see um, lots of journalists coming to grapple with it in very different ways and I think that has to do with trying to um, 
reimagine news um, as not just something that you do to people, uh, but also um, something that becomes um, much more kind of of a conversation in a way like going and seeing what people care about rather than like um just speaking to like an imagined audience i'd love to hear from both holly and destiny about how they see some of those trends playing out through through their work and their perspectives i definitely see trends of this idea of moving away from interrogation to a conversation happening both within the journalism industry but then also within academic research. There's this huge shift to responsibility and partnership Mm -hmm. within research, and particularly when you're dealing with communities, vulnerable communities who are looking for solution. We're moving away from this idea of a helicopter approach where a research institution or a researcher comes in, says, I have the answer, and then flies away, you know, kind of like drops something there. And we're looking more at how do we work together and how do we integrate these different values that you're talking about? And I think that's the key thing is how do you go and ask questions? What do you think is the story? What are the questions that we should be asking, both from a journalism perspective, but then also a research perspective? Because if we actually expect any of our work to be used in the end, towards solutions, then we have to come at it with a lens of what is important to the people who are going to be either using the information or are living this experience in their daily lives. So I see that as being a really important and valuable shift and trend that I hope continues in the academic community. I think we have to be so thankful to um, academics who've been talking about decolonizing uh, research, like people like Kim Tallbear, uh, and thinking about your what the debt you owe to the people that you're working with, uh, that you're then not just people to study, that they're also um, they also have voices, um, and I think. For example, in, in, in terms of, say, incorporating traditional knowledge um, from, from Native people into, say, scientific research, um, there's sort of the beginnings of a movement, but a lot more to be done to um, incorporate uh, traditional knowledge in a way that uh, honours it and also doesn't try to kind of uh, just lump it into science um, or plagiarise it, but actually um, expand the way that we can talk about climate change. And I think some of it is is almost stepping back from the idea that there's a right kind of response and a right kind of way of thinking about climate change, because I think that excludes many people, um, you know, not just people who say, you know, I don't believe in climate change, but also people who just think, well, environmentalism isn't for me. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a place for me here. I don't see myself in these people and, you know, they're not talking about things that I care about. And so... You know, there's a, there's a, this, the idea of decolonizing research, decolonizing environmentalism, and also, you know, thinking about how that can extend to the media um, is something that, you know, will be such an ongoing project um, and requires buy-in from um, people who've traditionally been in charge too. Uh, so I'm really excited to see it. And um, I also think we need to just expect leadership from a much more diverse group of people. And arguably, of course, many of the criticisms that Holly has just outlined about researchers, 
they're, they're the same criticisms that are leveled at many newsrooms. Yes, definitely. And I think that the part of it is it's a really difficult conversation right now because I think that um, people are often um, feel nostalgic for the time when the news told you what was true. And we have to recognize that that was a time when there were many people whose voices were never heard. Uh, and so we have to think about, you know, when we talk about, say, how even if you don't realize it, you, you don't sort of feel like you actively do it, you can be uh, complicit in oppression of other people. How can the news come to terms with that? You know, especially when they're considering, you know, the time when they when um, influence was greatest as a golden age still and something that, you know, they want to go back to. And so um, I think that there are so many more questions and conversations to be had there and also just a lot more listening um, and, you know, to realise that it's okay to change and that, that this could, um, you know, make the news a much more exciting and relevant um kind of institution for many more people and reflexive of what is actually happening exactly so that's what's so interesting in so many studies of media coverage of environmental issues you see that journalists are returning to routine sources mm -hmm. that are usually people of power right people who are affiliated with an organization that has funds to have professional communication public relations professionals and you don't see a lot of people who are just unaffiliated citizens or people who might not have um, any name recognition if they were featured in a journalistic piece. So thinking about how do we get out of those, how do we get out of those narratives and how do we think about what a different story could be? It's a really complex issue because it's asking all of us to rethink kind of what we were trained to be and how we think about a story and what the impacts and what our role in the solutions finding should be. So it's, it's a tough issue. And I think that it's it's something that um, also just relates to practical considerations. If people are on deadline, then they'll just call out the same people uh, because they know that they'll get a quote from them. Um, and so you know, it's hard. Um, but there, there's a lot of work being done, say, by, by different groups to sort of create lists of people who are willing to talk about climate change from more diverse backgrounds. Um, but it also requires, um, you know, a serious investment in um, in those people. So the BBC has actually been doing something uh, recently on um, supporting female um, experts. It, from whatever background uh, and to say, you know, don't worry if you haven't had media training, we will help you. You know, we'll call you into the studio and we won't, we won't call, we won't sort of catch you by surprise. We want to hear your voice. And um, that kind of investment to me seems like something that's very important. But also to think about, you know, where you're positioning those calls to. Are you, um, are you asking people through channels where, Maybe most of the people who use them are white and have high incomes, because in which case, you know, you also need to be more imaginative about how you reach people. It's a little bit like saying, um, you know, we're trying to recruit a more diverse workforce, but people just aren't applying. And actually, it's about you know, how do you do that work? You know, the kind of self-selecting nature of the media and the fact that it's um, 
that it is very homogeneous is the product of you know many years of basically shutting people out. So how can you um, bring people in, support them, and uh, make them feel like they're at home? And if we look at your research, um, once this is kind of concluded and your thesis is kind of done over the course of the next year, what do you hope people will do with what you have learned? So I'm hoping that um, it will highlight the importance of meeting people where they are uh, and thinking about how people are responding to the kinds of information that they give them uh, in order to um, you think about how you can create these policy uh, solutions that, for example, could start to address things like um, housing inequality. It, resilience seems to me like um, a way... It, it could go really badly in that you could um, end up creating a place that um, that excludes a lot of people or you could think about how um, resilience responses could um, go towards dealing with some of the historic problems that, that exist um, sort of within communities. And um, part of that is... Um, so seeing the different kinds of identity that exists within a community and the kind of imaginations that um, are connected to that because those things are historical. They have a history. They don't just exist um, sort of without context. And I think for uh, policymakers and communicators to be able to tap into those identities, to see, for example, where um, you can find uniting narratives, say, around um, hurricane preparedness, for example, or where you could highlight uh, the knowledge of people who've been marginalised historically, um, like talking to um, you know, people who've lived uh, in Miami for generations and maybe been overlooked in sort of many different discussions, asking them for um, you know their memories and, and um, knowledge about dealing with hurricanes, for example, or how um, uh, they, they sort of bring different community members together. Um, I think that being able to Number one thing that there's, you know, highlighting the fact that there's no right way to um, engage with climate change. But then also, I think, um, broadening the way that we talk about um, both climate ch change and also the responses to it to include things that maybe can't be costed, you know, that, that um, say, um, you know, the I mean, mangroves do protect the shoreline from um from storm surge for example but their value doesn't just lie in the um, financial losses that they avoid it also has to do with um, their, their part in a sort of much wider um, network of of um, uh, ecology and also human relations to nature uh, so I think I would like to see that going, you know, these kinds of understandings and this sort of um, willingness to listen going into the discussions that people are going to be having about what um, our responses to climate change should look like. Um, and I think that can make things more complicated. It can sometimes slow things down. But I also think you can end up with much more um, legitimate um, responses that don't just feel like an imposition on people. Um, but also, you know, can find um, unexpected pathways um, and unexpected ways of um, creating unity in places that can feel very stratified. What key messages or takeaways would you want students and faculty to take away from your visit here at the University of Oregon? 
my main sort of point, I think, is a pretty simple one, uh, which is that um, everyone can engage with climate change. It shouldn't be something that you feel intimidated about. And it's not something that you need to understand all of the science to be able to talk about. It's um, something that affects you in every area. And um, you should feel empowered to enter discussions about it. And that doesn't mean that um, people need to go to special meetings, for example. Um, but I think that it we need to, for example, make um, politicians more um, accountable for their discussion of climate change or lack of um, and um, sort of make this into a voting issue that connects to um, issues like jobs, housing, transit and um, what the future of the economy could be. And so by sort of inviting more people in and saying that there's no right way to care about climate change, I think that, um, you know, we could have these much more interdisciplinary, um, inclusive and um, productive discussions about climate change. Right. Well, that sounds like a very positive way in which to end this conversation. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this discussion and do keep an eye out for Rosie's guest lecture, which you'll be able to find wherever you found this podcast. And of course, we'll also link to it from our website, demystifying.uoregon.edu. So do keep an eye and an ear out for that. In the meantime, it just remains for me to thank my guest today, Rosalind Donald, as well as Destiny Alvarez and Holly Smith. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out another from the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. The Listener's Podcast is a show about the craft and power of listening. We talk with media and communication experts, thought leaders, doers and innovators whose ideas can amplify the quality of our dialogue and interactions. Subscribe to the show anywhere where you find your other favourite podcasts and visit listenerspodcast.com to go deeper with each of our episode's show notes. Thanks for listening.